Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thanks again for joining me here at the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is episode 15. The first major of 2018 is in the books, and Patrick Reed is your new Masters champion. As you all have probably noticed by now, I haven't shared my own personal thoughts and feelings all that much. Haven't told you what I thought of Tiger, or Phil, Ricky, Rory, Jordan. I think there are plenty of people in the golf media that do that already, and most of it do it pretty well. If you're so inclined, you can do some research on the internet and pull up plenty of articles on Patrick Reed. You'll get to read up on his wife and kids, his family, sister, who his friends are on tour, and who his enemies are. It's all out there for your consumption. I don't know Patrick Reed as a person, and I probably never will. Actually, that's probably a very common statement among the majority of the media and fans around the golf world. But here's what I do know. He played 72 holes at Augusta National last week. He beat everyone else in the tournament, and he's the Masters champion. Towards the end of the tournament, I started asking myself this one question. Why am I able to root for Tiger Woods and ignore his personal life trials and tribulations, but not do the same with Patrick Reed? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't want to get too deep here. After all, this is, you know, this is just a golf podcast. Speaking of the podcast, we just got picked up by Spotify. This is absolutely huge. Go ahead in there, search the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. You will find it. Subscribe there. If you don't like Apple Podcasts, if you don't like Google Play, you can listen to us on Spotify. Also, we are on Instagram. Check us out there, the Back of the Range Podcast. Our website is thebackoftherange.com. That's where you can find every single episode we have and links on how to subscribe in like I said, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. And if you like the podcast so far, please leave a review, share it with your friends. I cannot tell you how important that is, and I greatly appreciate all your support. Before we get to this week's guest, congrats to Joaquin Neiman and Doc Redman on their appearances in the Masters. Both are friends of the podcast. We wish them all the best for the rest of the year. Joaquin is playing in the Valero Texas Open. Doc is going to slum it at the RBC Heritage this week. I'm just kidding. That's an amazing event. So good luck to both of them. After watching the Masters this week, I thought it'd be a good time to release the episode I recorded with Mark Dahl from Lakeland, Florida. Mark was one match away from playing in the 2016 Masters. He was a finalist in the 2015 U.S. Mid-Am. He is the reigning Florida State Amateur Player of the Year. He was also a semifinalist at the 2017 U.S. Four Ball. His partner, Chip Brook, yeah, that was last week's episode. Um, if you like Chip's episode, um, yeah, you're going to like Mark's. He is, uh, he's absolutely a one-of-a-kind person and player, and he shared some great stories. And some of them I was even actually able to include in the episode. So that's a good thing. Mark, thanks for the time. Welcome to the Back of the Range. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. What's going on? Well, just uh, just another day. You you don't exactly have the strict nine to five office job, so um, you're caddying over at Streamsong Resort in. Gosh, what city is Streamsong Resort technically in now? Technically in Bowling Green. Okay, for those people that aren't aware of where Bowling Green, Florida is, don't worry, not many people do. So Streamsong is just kind of tucked away in just a uh, small pocket. 
Um, before we get to your your accomplishments playing, tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Streamsong as far as your caddying and, and what a typical day looks like for you. Uh, I mean, you know, I get the joy of watching 18 handicappers shoot 97 every day. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. You're, <laughs> you're selling that career move to everyone listening. So, uh, yeah, no, it's actually a nice gig. I mean, we, uh, you know, it's nice to only work five, six hours on a daily basis. And, you know, I get to be around golf all day and I get to talk golf all day. So, I mean, it's not a bad gig. Um, it's actually really helped my green reading and course management skills because I'm reading greens, you know, constantly every day. And I'm also convincing the 10 handicapper that he can't hit it 230 over the pond, you know, so, okay. you know, so it actually has helped me tremendously with the, uh, with the course management as well. I, I take a lot less risk now than I did before I started caddying there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously we have listeners all over uh, the country and then actually in, in countries all over the world. And, you know, unfortunately in, in the States, and especially in Florida, a lot of golf courses are pretty much tied to golf carts only. So other than the cardiovascular benefits of walking and, and playing golf, what are some of the benefits that you're seeing with your game or with others to being able to play by, by walking? Uh, I mean, well, the social interaction, first of all, is far greater when you walk because you all, everybody's walking with each other instead of hopping in their cart taken off you're stuck with the same guy you play you're with all day um so when you're walking you're getting to have a good conversation you got time to kind of like think and relax if you hit a bad shot you get to kind of relax and and walk it off if you hit a good shot you got time to think about you know okay well how did i do that or how am i going to hit the next good one you know so this is the time in between shots that's so much more important whether it's the the mental aspect of the game or just like the interaction with the people you're playing with and you mentioned just being around these 10, 15, 20 handicappers. Obviously, you're, you're, not, a, you're not a swing coach, but um, I would say you're a, easily a mental coach and a game management coach when you're out there for these people. And they're just right. coming to the resort looking to have a good time and get the most out of their vacation or their day or what have you. So it, I know it's hard to, to specify one thing, but what is something that you find yourself consistently doing for these players to help them enjoy their golf more? Honestly, I have the most advice I've ever that I ever give on the golf course is really like more about how to play out of the sand, how to play out of bad lies. Okay. Um, because most everybody's going to swing it how they're going to swing it. I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to change their swing while I'm out caddying for them, but I can give them information and keys how to better play out of, let's say, a plug bunker or a downhill lie or maybe a straight uphill lie, side hill lie. So basically, I'm I help them most mostly with the with the awkward lies and the bad lies that come with playing golf. How many years have you been caddying out at Stream Song? Mm, about four and a half years. Nice. So, without name dropping, can you give me a story of just an absolute, um, like one of your best, most memorable days out there, or give me an example of just one of the more nightmare days out there that you've had? Like the most memorable like instance that ever happened to me out there was um, we actually had a guy I thought he killed himself to be honest with you on the 18th <laughs> grade. Um, he uh, I don't know if anybody's you know over the back 18 over the over the back of blue 18 there's about a 25 to 35 foot drop off depending on what side of it you're on. And the guy had his ball over the green and he was like standing one foot in and one foot off this drop off and. Uh, 
when he swung, it literally looked like a trap door came out from underneath him. It literally went like ass over tea kettle all the way to the bottom. And uh, there's one tree down there that stopped him from actually going into the ravine, into the pond. So he's kind of wedged between this tree and the hill. And we look over the hill and sure as shit, his feet are straight up in the air. He's head down, feet up in the air. So we run down there to pick him up. And we thought he, we, we thought he was dead. And then as soon as we get down there, he's literally dying laughing. Of course, of course. <laughs> so we all lost our mind. We couldn't help but laugh. So we finally get to pull him up out of the thing. And he's like, he's like, some little ravine can't kill me. He pulls his shirt up. He's got like 19 scars all across his chest and stomach. He's like a three-time cancer survivor. He was oh like, my- dude. He's like, I've survived cancer three times. He's like, there's no way that's going to kill me. This is like the modern day Bishop story from Caddyshack. Yeah, it was unbelievable. All right. Well, yeah, he didn't die on you. So, so I guess he that, so, so you got and, that going for you. Yeah. And uh, I mean, literally some of the caddies and players still ask me about it and still bring it up from time to time to this day. And that was easily three and a half to four years ago. Oh, gosh. Okay. Has that guy yeah. been back since, or was it once enough? The guy has not been back, but the group that he played with comes back every year. They come back in January. So every time we get to that hole, they, like, kind of toast the guy and, oh, like, great. and, uh, yeah, I mean, the guy literally had 16 beers and 18 holes. He he was just probably, you know, noodled his way to the bottom and didn't have, you know. Oh, yeah, well, if you're going to fall off a cliff, at least be liquored up so you can't feel anything. So that's, Exactly. That's it was fantastic. Guy. So, yeah. so before we, uh, before we start, uh, letting people get the idea that you're, you're just looping at stream song, uh, you, uh, I know this is going to be brutal for you to hear, but you're the, you're the ranking player of the year in the state of Florida. You're the best amateur in the state of Florida. Are you able to sleep at night knowing that? And are, how many strokes do you have to give when you play casual rounds? Yeah. The, uh, the casual rounds are killing me. I'm giving out way too much candy. <laughs> I just, uh, I tell them I'm 50 cent. Welcome to the candy shop. Every time we go, oh, go to that's a, good, that's a good one. Well, you had, you had an amazing year last year that you are the, you're the, the reigning player of the year. Florida state golf association, uh, had tremendous finishes all year long. Let's see. You won the mid amateur stroke play at the end of the year. That kind of sealed that up for you. And then you're pretty much off to another great start. You just won the, the Gasparil invitational here, um, here in Tampa. Um, I know that was your first time playing in that event and actually knowing you and then knowing that tournament pretty well, that's that tournament seems perfect for you because it's not just about a go- about the golf, but it's also about the fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a four day party. Right uh, on my end. Yeah. See, I was actually not surprised at all that you, uh, that you won that tournament. Actually, you set a tournament record. I think you're at two Oh three for three rounds. So you, uh, you set a new tournament record uh, there at the Gasparilla. Um, that's what they say. That's what they say. So, so tell me about not just, I don't want to go down every single shot, every single, you know, um, uh, round that you played there is a, it's a three round event, but, um, what was your first impression when you got to Palmasia and attended the parties and attended the social aspect of this tournament? How is this tournament different than others? Um, well, the golf course is unique because it's a very intimate setting. I mean, literally it's like, I mean, it, it's built in 1916. So every hole is parallel to another hole or another two holes. So everything's really tight. And you literally walk off the green to the next tee. So, I mean, there's no range. You have to warm up hitting down one of the other fairways. So, like, 
any spectators, any every player, everybody feels like they're on top of each other. So, like literally, you walk on the on on site and you feel like you go back like fifty or sixty years in time. It's something that you would, that I would imagine you know a tournament would feel like in the forties and fifties with the members all out there, with all the members watching. You know, they didn't have the TV to go watch. It was something to do. So the, the member support and then on top of that, the atmosphere is just it's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah, for for listeners that aren't aware of this tournament, it's you can I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's GasparillaInvitational.com. The history of this tournament is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, it started as a professional tournament. Um, actually, this is the location of Walter Hagen's last victory. So, Correct. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. So so you got Hagen on there, and then once this thing transitioned more into an amateur event, you you have just you know you have U.S. Mid Am champions. Hal Sutton won it, and uh, Buddy Alexander, who's the uh, former coach at UF, he's won it. So just the names on here are are ridiculous, and and uh, and now uh, and now your name's on there. So uh, <laughs> so just adding to the ridiculousness. Um, exactly. So do you prefer events? Now you've you've played in USG events. You play professionally, but do you prefer events like this that are more social and more uh, relaxed as opposed to? maybe a USGA event or, or a state amateur, or is it just, just two different brands and you like each one for, for what they both have? Or, I mean, if you had to pick what, what's kind of your preference? Um, you know, I like them both for different reasons. I think if every event was the state am, I think it or the USAM, it would get a little bit monotonous. I love the change of pace. That's the only reason I played in this event this year, because I had heard such great things about the event and the atmosphere and, you know, they're setting up the grandstands and there's drink stands and, you know, food stands all over the golf course. They got beautiful women sitting in the drink stands. Like, so I just heard so many good things about it. I'm like, you know what? It's worth a shot because I wasn't sold on the golf course, um, but they redid it about six years ago and they turned it into a phenomenal 6,400 yard gym. It's really a great facility now. Yeah, I, I actually played in it just one time, and I was going to come back the next year, and that's when they lost their greens due to that uh, fungus that they had, and that was the yeah. only year that they canceled it, and I haven't been back since, but I definitely need to go check it out. Um, so you're saying drink stands. So you now you don't partake in, in, a, in a drink when you're playing a serious competitive round, do you, Mark? Um, absolutely, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's that crack investigative reporting I'm doing right here. They got you, to, got you to agree to that one. So, um, obviously, if you're you're having a couple of drinks when you're when you're playing competitively, I'd imagine the social rounds of golf, uh, some of them can kind of go off the rails. So, without again, we're we're not the TMZ of golf podcasts. We just like good stories, and names really aren't important. So, can you think of a time that you've played a social round of golf with you know not a USGA or? Not anything serious, but a social round of golf where things just developed quickly and got off the rails and got bad really quick. Um, I can think of a couple. I mean, one time we were playing in a match uh, at one of the golf courses nearby me, and we got in 18 holes. Everybody was kind of sauced up a little bit, so we decided to play a little scramble. And uh, by the second hole of this scramble, Somebody was driving to their car to get their gun to shoot the other player. So that was his threat. He's like, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to go to my car right now. Like, white men can't jump style. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was one of the times something just got completely off the rails. Um, 
I played uh, played golf one time, and myself, we uh, we were drinking all day and threw a few bad shots. And by the end of the round, I went home with just a head cover and a urine spider. My uh, my entire bag ended up in the pond. <laughs> Had to be all new stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Wow. Well, those are two examples of things going bad really quickly. I've, I, I'm not sure which one's worse, but I guess, you know, firearms on the golf course, um, you know, that luckily nobody ever got shot, yeah, but well, uh, that, was, that was pretty much the end of the round. Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. So, um, okay. So you pretty much got started uh, playing the game pretty early and you were able to transition your your junior golf into uh, playing at Florida Southern. Now you you did turn professional at some point. Um, when did you pretty much decide that hey you know chasing after this on the mini tours really isn't for me? Well, I only turned professional because all of my buddies were turning pro, and I was like that ah, was the thing to do. Hey, if you're, all of your buddies are going to fall off a cliff, why not you? Right? Exactly. Yeah, why not me too? But you know that's not really falling off a cliff. That's just you know going scuba diving and see if you can make it back. You know, but. Um, Okay. So I, I, uh, I turned pro, I played for about a year and a half or so, and, uh, really kind of lost the love for the game. My game went to funk, couldn't break, couldn't break par, couldn't hardly break 75. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take some time off though. Some time off turned into like a year and a half off. I was like, you know what? If I'm not going to play anything professionally, I might as well apply to get my under status back. So I applied to get my under status back in like l- late 2014. And then kind of decided, okay, maybe I'll start playing again. And then kind of after taking a year or so off, I just kind of started over and just kind of fell back in love with the game. I, you know, I used to have a terrible temper and now it's gone. I love, like, I love the process of playing. I don't, it doesn't bother me if I play bad. I mean, I don't want to play bad, but I don't let it get to me. And um, it's totally changed my game around completely. So, um, you know, after getting your, your amateur status back, uh, and working at Streamsong. So I would imagine that you have complete access to the resort where you can just practice all day and chip and putt and just hit buckets of balls. But I- I'm guessing you're not a big practicer. Is that pretty accurate? Uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. We don't get to hit balls out there, but that doesn't bother me because if I have time to hit balls, I have time to play. So I would much rather play. Um, I've never been a technical person. Like when I'm going to the range, I'm like, what am I working on? So like I learned how to play golf just by like, okay, you have 18 holes to get it in and a good score. So I just learned to play golf. Like this is how you play. I learned to chip and putt as a young age. My great grandfather always told me, he's like, if you can chip and putt, he's like, you can figure it out. So I learned to chip and putt as a young kid. And then from that point on, I just, you know, the more I played golf, the better I got and learned how to shoot, you know, 65 when I used to think 75 was a good score, my dad would send me out to play with all the hustlers at, um, at the little muni track where I grew up at Willowbrook. He's like, son, if you want to be any good, he's like, you got to go learn to play with these guys. So he would send me out there and, uh, I'd get my three or four side. And then, you know, I I learned how to make birdies and learned how to shoot 65 just by playing with these guys who were doing it on a daily basis. So your, your upbringing in the game wasn't necessarily the, you know, your, it wasn't your standard, hey, my, my dad's a golf pro or, or my, my parents were members of the club. It sounds to me that your dad just dropped you off and <laughs> put you in the hands of all these old school hustlers. And, and that pretty much shaped your, your start yeah. in the game. 
and not even my dad, my, my grandmother would drop me off because my parents couldn't afford for me to play golf. So my grandmother would pay for my like junior membership and she would pick me, you know, take me at seven o'clock in the morning and then she'd pick me up at dark or, you know, drop me off at day up and drop me off at dark or pick me up at dark. So I just, she's like, here you go, figure it out. And uh, we had a good pro at that course. He played on the European tour. So I went to, she paid for me to go to his golf camp and he taught me how to chip and putt. But other than that, I didn't have a lesson golf lesson until I was 20 something years old. I just started playing with these guys and figured it out learned how to play golf and learned how to gamble a little bit. So, uh, gambling on a golf course, outrageous. So what were, uh, what were some of the games that you got into with these guys? I mean, getting, just kind of giving an idea like your age and their age. Are we talking, these are like guys in their twenties and thirties. Are we talking to just, you know, uh, you know, kind of give me an average Saturday afternoon when you're a kid at this course. Uh, well, you know, I started playing with them at first and then, you know, these guys were between 30 and 60, some old senior tour pros some local, local amateurs, some, you know, local pros. Um, and they just had this big game every Saturday and I wanted to get in, get into it. So, um, you know, finally I convinced, well, I convinced my dad, my dad, it was his idea. He's like, listen, if you want to be any good, here's 20 or 40 bucks, learn how to go, go, you know, gamble it or spend it or get in their game and see how you do. My mom thought it was the most outrageous thing on the planet. Like why on earth are you giving this kid 20 bucks to go gamble with these guys or, you know, to play in their game. Right. Uh, and he's like, listen, if he wants to be any good, he's got to learn to beat these guys first. So that was kind of just how I got into it. They all had all kinds of, like, I learned how I learned, learned the lingo, you know, what a Nassau was, what a, what a press was, what a, you know, two down autos were, you know, all the golf right. lingos and stuff. Like that's where I learned it all. So when you're, so I'm just thinking now, now that we're, we're seeing exactly how you got your start in the game compared to the kids that, that you and I see when we go play in these uh, state amateur tournaments or where you're at qualifiers, you're seeing these kids that are 16, 17, they're coming out of golf academies that, that, you know, you could tell just by interacting with them socially, they just, they don't have it probably as much uh, as you did or as I did when we were growing up. I mean, how much of an advantage was that upbringing for you compared to what some of these kids are at right now? Uh, it's a, it's, it was a disadvantage, like physically wise. I mean, obviously these kids that go to the golf, these golf academies, I mean, they have tour swings when they're 14, 15, 16, you know, we just had a homemade golf swings, figured it out. Yeah. But the social aspect of it was huge. You learned how to interact with all the kids that were at the golf camp up to the six year old guys you were playing in their games with. Like you just learned how to interact and communicate and how to handle yourself around people of all ages. Sounds like that's probably serving you the best as a caddy at stream song. I mean, obviously, obviously you know the game, but if you can interact with a 20 handicapper or a lady in her sixties or, you know, you know, these kids, the kids or something like that. So it sounds like just that has just shaped you into being successful, not just on the course, but also caddying. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, my job basically, I obviously, I'm playing golf without actually hitting the golf shot, but what makes you a good caddy is yes, you have to know the information, but you have to be able to adjust your game and interact and socialize and, and figure out people within the first hole or two. You, you don't get to wait nine holes to decide to figure somebody out. You need to learn somebody within the first hole or two, or otherwise you and this person are not going to get along and you may get fired or you're not going to get paid as well. 
So you have to read people. You have to learn to read people right off the rip. And uh, absolutely, it's been a huge help. Do most of the guests that come over to Streamsong that take a look at you, because you're you're six foot seven. Um, I mean, you don't necessarily look like the prototypical golfer. Are you still rocking the uh, the big, huge calf socks when you're out there? Of course. Okay. I need to put a picture of that up here so everyone can that's, get it. Uh, that's because I know they're going to be hitting in tall grass, and it just makes it easier to walk through. All right. I know you're. I know you're. Uh, you're downplaying your your fashion sense there, but I'll let you get away with that one. So, <laughs> so do they know that who's catting for them, or do you ever do you ever find it funny when like a 10, 15 handicappers kind of treating you like you're just you know toting a bag? Do they does any of them you know kind of make any comments and then someone has to tap them in the shoulder like yeah that guy knows he's he knows what he's doing um you know i try not to tell people i play golf um until they bring it up or they ask um but most people are and no they do they have no idea when they when i first meet them because you're right i don't look like a, a stereotypical golfer um but you know they're they're curious they're they're always curious who am I spending my money on? Who's caddying for me? What's his knowledge? How does he know, get his knowledge? So, it, like, basically, by the by the third or fourth hole, you've had a job interview with pretty much every group that you're with. You know, they're always asking questions, wanting to get to know you, sure. and how you got into caddying, and what your background is. So, literally, I, every every group I have, I, I have a job interview within the first five or six holes, usually. Well, it's, it's working for you so far, so... Um... I mean, you, you've been, you've been there for, for quite a while and, and doing great there. So, um, as far as, uh, what, what are your plans for golf as far as tournament wise? What, what's your, uh, playing schedule looking like over the next couple of years? I've got a couple of exemptions for the USGA and two us four ball exemptions left. Um, I've got the us mid-am exemption this year. Um, I'm going to play the state opens and the state AMs because I'm exempt for all those. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to do Q school this, this November, but I'm going to do it as an amateur. I just, I've never done it. And, uh, something I've always wanted to try and my game is getting better and better each year. So I have to at least try it or I'll, you know, I always wonder what if, so I'm going to do it as an amateur this, this November, I'm going to go to, to the web Q school. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so you're pretty much just going to use your exemptions this year, uh, play in that, and then just get ready for November. Now, you you obviously have had some some great success in the USGA. Notice, I think you've played in six or is it six uh, USGA events now? I've played in seven. Seven. Oh. So you, with seven USGA events, uh, most notably, you have your semifinal appearance in the 2017 US 4 ball with Chip Brook. And then... 2015, uh, U.S. Mid-Am, this was right at Johns Island in Vero Beach, Florida. You made it to the final match. So without going into all the details and all the history of that, there are a couple of notable things that I'm just very curious about. One, um, you shot 69 in the first round of stroke play. Um, tell me about the second round of stroke play. Well, I mean, the, the golf course we played was so much more difficult. I, I mean, I think it played four shots harder that golf course did than the one I shot 69 on. Um, but honestly, my game was just not in any position to, uh, to make it as far as I did. The second round, I hit it all over the place. 
like steered it around, couldn't hit it in the fairway, was getting it up and down from everywhere for pars and bogeys. I mean, I shot, I think I shot 77, which could have been 82 in a hurry. Um, I tried to give it away. Uh, and then that was actually the best thing that could happen to me because I hit it so bad that day that I went to the range and spent a couple of hours like trying to figure out what was going on because I was hitting it so good coming into the event. So if I played well that day, I don't know that I would have made it as far as I did. It actually made me refocus, just kind of go back to the basics and get to figure out my whole game. Well, for, for the research I did, you, you shot 69.78 to get yourself in as the number 39 seed out of the 64 that made uh, match play. And then really, um, I'm looking at just your matches, and I think you had a one-up victory in the round of 32, if I am correct. Yeah, you had a one-up victory over, over Mark Harrell from, uh, from, uh, from Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And then really the other rounds that you had, you know, I see a couple, um, you know, I see a couple, uh, you know, two-ups and three-and-twos, things like that. So I'm sure with all the interviews you've done in the past with either USGA or, or anyone they all focus on the final match and what would have been like to go to the masters and all that stuff. But um, this is the match where Sammy Schmitz famously made a hole in one on a par four. Right. Were, did you, were you able to see that? And was there a huge gallery following that? Were able to see that there's no video uh, of it. So I, I you know, <laughs> hate to make you walk back that, that memory, but. Oh, um, we didn't get to see it go in because it's an elevated green, but there was probably, I don't know, between three and 500 people watching us. I don't know exactly how many there were, but, um, yeah, I teed off first and then the greenside bunker had a pretty decent tee shot. And, uh, so he hit his ball and it's a two tier green. We saw it roll up the tier, the bottom, you know, from the bottom tier up to the slope. Salt started coming back down. We knew immediately it was going to be good. Right. And then just the whole audience, the whole, all the spectators just lost their mind and went nuts. So we obviously knew exactly what happened. Um, after, you know, once it went in, after they went crazy. Well, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to lose a match, I mean, uh, I mean, and that, and that actually ended, that ended the match pretty much, didn't it? Uh, it made it dormy. It made it three and three. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, basically it did. I mean, I tell everybody the best shot he actually hit was the two iron hit on the next hole, which was a par three. Yeah, I thought that was be- I thought that was better than the driver you hit that went in under the circumstances. Sure. So, um, you, there's now you have you have a, a young son named uh, named Cooper and. Do you ever think like I I know people have asked you know hey if you would have gone to the Masters. But do you do you think that maybe not getting into that tournament kind of kept you focused on playing amateur golf and kept your love of the game and has led into the additional success? Do you ever think of maybe where life would have taken you if you did get to play in the Masters, not just for that great experience, but, um, you know, do you, do you think you would have turned pro at, at that point? Um, that's a good question, actually. I mean, it just depends. I think, I think there would have been more people, like, interested in, in that question, whether I was going to turn pro or not. And then let's just say I made it to them. Let's say I play in the match. Let's say I play well. Let's say I make the cut. Sure. It was quite possible because I was playing really good golf at the time. And it's a long golf course and I hit it pretty long. And 
So let's just say I was playing well and made the cut. Now what happens? Yeah, of course, there would have been so many more options. There would have been so many more things thrown at me with that possibility. So, yeah, it probably would have changed the course of fate for sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, you know, you, you know, a lot of the U.S. mid-ams that, that come in to uh, to play in the Masters uh, are largely, I mean, and, and I don't mean this as, as a uh, – a slight on them, but as far as stature and personality wise, and you know, they're largely kind of forgettable. Um, I guess that really the only ones so far lately, obviously with Stuart Hagestad making the cut, but a lot of the U S mid ams they grab their two rounds at, at the masters and their memories. And that's about it. But, you know, yeah. I, I'm just thinking to myself, if you would have been there just the coverage and seeing some six foot seven guy with the, with the, with the, just, I mean, you're, you can't go unnoticed out there and all it takes is a couple of people to say, Hey, we want to help you succeed. And then you're off to the races. Right. Yeah. And they, um, I mean, that was all over the headlines for during the tournament because, you know, I would have been only the second caddy quote unquote caddy to ever play in the masters. There was one other guy, Luga, I think his name was or something. Yeah. No, that's, that's his name. I believe it was the 1990 U S mid-am champion. Yeah. So. I mean, I would have been basically, you know, quote unquote, only the second really caddy to ever play in it. So that was a storyline the whole time. And I'm going to imagine that I made it. It would have been been an even bigger story, like during the event, you know. Sure. So let's pivot over to uh, a, a USG event that really, you know, I have not been able to play in this one yet. I've played in the US Mid-Am uh, once, but the, the US four ball. So this was pretty much created to replace the US Amateur Public Links. The USJ got rid of that because it. Um, you know, unfortunately it kind of lost its shape of what it was originally designed for, which was a, you know, a a tournament that excluded, uh, country club players, but, you know, college players kind of got access to that. So, um, describe just the, not just that tournament experience you had with, with Chip where he made to the semis, but is that just a completely different flavor of USG event compared to the AM and the mid AM, or does it still have the intensity of those other events? Uh, it is definitely different because you're there with a friend of yours. You, I mean, I would imagine most people play with a good friend of theirs, not just somebody they found off the street, you know, to try to win it. Sure. Um, so Chip and I have been friends for, you know, since he hired me at Streamsong. Um, so to be there with your friend and, you know, to share the wins and the losses is, I mean, it's not, it doesn't even compare to the individual stuff because the individual stuff, even though you have a caddy, you have somebody sharing the experience with you. It's not the same thing. The same guy you're playing with has the same feeling the the same joy when you wake up in the morning, the same like anxiety, the same nervousness, the same excitement. When you make a putt, so you get to share everything through both the good and the bad. So it just has a completely different feel. Yes. It's super competitive. And yes, there are a ton of players there and you don't want to win any less, but the fact that you get to share all those feelings, both good and bad with somebody else who gets that, who can understand them completely is uh is really awesome it's my favorite part of the event yeah and when you guys were made made the semifinals you were at the um you're at pinehurst and we talked to to scott kennedy earlier uh in one of our previous episodes he was there that was actually the site of his um he got married at pinehurst so his uh groomsman was actually his four ball partner and he basically used that as a 10th year uh wedding anniversary trip brought his wife which i thought that's just brilliant right there i mean hey. you must have a really good wife i know that was i totally <laughs> told that to him many times like man you're just killing it in the wife department man i mean you know 
wedding anniversary. I got to go play this golf thing. But um, you, so you guys got bumped out by a couple of high school kids. So um, what's your take on, I mean, the U.S. four ball was set up to replace the U.S. amateur public links. But if there's high school kids that have access to golf academies and they're playing in this tournament, what's your feeling on maybe setting some sort of like an age restriction uh, on on the U.S. four ball? And does it do you think that could be something coming, uh, you know, over the horizon? We all remember what it was like playing golf in high school, and for those kids to get to experience, I mean, they, this was so they were, were seniors in high school when we played them. And that was their third four ball. I think they played in the first two. I think they played in all three of them that have come along. Jeez. Um, I don't think there should be an age limit. I mean, the college, most of the college players are already getting X'd out of it because it's at the same time as the NCAA postseason tournaments. So I think they do that on purpose. I think the timing of the event is on purpose to do that, to kind of, you know, shy those people, shy the college students, college kids from playing in the event. But you know what? If you're 15 or 16 or 17, I know how hard it is to qualify for that event doing it myself. If you qualify, I don't think there should be any age restrictions. I hope they don't change the age limit. I think they should give everybody that opportunity to do it because it's an awesome event. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. So speaking of Chip Brook, who was your your U.S. floorball partner, and you mentioned, so he, he hired you at Streamsong when he was the caddy master there. That's correct. Yes. So now, was this kind of your first time meeting him at Streamsong, or were you guys friends before then? Um, no, actually, the first time I met Chip, we were playing at Bartow Golf Course, and he was in front of us. And the ten hole there is a three hundred and ten yard par four, and you know I had just played the front nine. I shot like thirty or thirty one. I was feeling good, and I saw these young guys. I was trying to get like a little action, trying to stir the pot a little bit. Shot. I didn't ever, never, never seen him in front of us, never seen him before. So they were in front of us. So he steps up there with three wood. And of course, me being myself, I'm like, that ain't enough club. You may want to hit driver. <laughs> Just got to talk some trash. And uh, so one of the other guys that was playing with him turned around and said, have you ever seen him hit three wood? I'm like, I don't care. He needs to hit driver. So anyway, so we go about our business. Nothing good. Nothing happens from it. So literally probably two or three months later, I had been I had been texting or not texting but emailing and calling down there and I could never I could never get a hold of anybody. So finally I was like, you know what? Heck with it. I'm just gonna drive down the stream song and just introduce myself, just walk in. Literally the first thing Chip ever said to me when I walked through the door, he said, Hey, you're that guy from Barto, aren't you? I said, I put my head down, I'm like, Yep, looks like I'm not getting a job here. That's awesome. So, but Chip being the guy he is, we talked about it and he's like, dude, it's all good, man. He's like, I really don't care. He's like, you obviously know the game and I'm looking for good caddy. So get your stuff. You're going on your first shadow. So the day I walked down there, I went on my first shadow loop and it's been history ever since. That is an awesome story. And, and Chip has a lot of experience. I mean, as we detailed in the last episode, he basically went from, uh, from band and dudes to stream song on the, how, how the hell he pulled that off. But that's, uh, those are two consecutive loops that you just, you know, can't, uh, can't ask anything better from. So chipping the right. great guy that he is, I actually reached out to him a little while back and I said, give me a good doll story. And, uh, he's like, well, I don't know if you're going to get this story out of him, but we're, we're going to go ahead and try it. So, um, you guys played a four ball event in Naples, Florida. <laughs> I, knew that. Yeah. I knew that was coming. Perfect. Then I don't need to set it up. So you go ahead and tell <laughs> as much of this story as you can. And don't, re- don't forget, I'm an excellent editor and I will take care of you. So you go ahead. 
<laughs> oh man, I don't even know how to tell the story without spelling myself out. Oh, as um, long as it's just you that's getting thrown under the bus, I think that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I'm talking legally too. So, so we were down down south with he and I were playing golf in this tournament, and we were out with another person, and this other person said they were too intoxicated to drive. So I was like, well, I'll drive your car. No problem. So while I was driving their car, her car, his car, whoever's it was, um, I was following Chip. Well, somebody got in between Chip and I. (laughs) And and so he, he calls me. I'm like trying to find a place to hide. He calls me. He's like, partner? I'll have your club. Just make sure you're the first, you're at the first tee by eight o'clock the next day. I'm like, all right, got it. So I like find this little nook behind the hotel. I sleep there till like six in the morning. I start walking down the street. Here's this cab. I'm like, Hey, I need to get to this place. So the cab takes me to the golf course. We play golf. We play really well. We actually get ourselves in the final group for the next day, but in, somewhere along the way, I lost my phone. Could not find my phone. So we're like, oh, man, I don't know where it's at. So we go to bed. We wake up the next morning. I think we finished second in the event. We played decent. But anyways, we finished second. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I know where my phone is. I think it's in this little nook behind this hotel where I slept the night before. He's like, there's no way. I'm like, I have a good recollection of which direction I ran. I swear we'll find it. Sure as shit, I run back and take pretty much the same route, find the same little nook, and there my phone was been laying in the laying in the grass for two days. And I got it, and it was still working. <laughs> okay, so you just slept it slept in the, in the t- I slept in the grass behind the bush. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Um, oh my god, it was it was absolutely insane. Now, now, what's this other story about you guys at Bloomingdale? Someone shot 66 or 67 and threw their clubs away, or what happened with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was at Bloomingdale. So we played Bloomingdale a hundred times. And uh, so this was probably only, so after 2015, after the U.S. Mid-Am, that, so that was in October. So this is literally probably like just three or four weeks later after the event. This is sometime in November. So we're out. So we go to the casino one night and we stay at the casino until six or seven o'clock in the morning. And we decided it's a good idea just to go straight to the golf course. Yeah. So we go back to Bloomingdale. Yeah. Cause doesn't that what everybody does after a uh, 12 hour binge at the casinos, they go straight to the golf course. Yeah. So Very we much. go then. We go to the golf course and this golf course is a really tough course. We've all played a hundred times. The best score we've ever seen shot is 68. So Tipper on no sleep. It's just lighting it up. We have no idea how this is happening. I'm all pissed off because um, I'm getting smoked. And then we start drinking again. So that didn't help the cause. So by the time we get to like the 17th hole, 17th holes a par three, 16's a par five, I think I, I, think I shot like 74 or five. Not something not very good, but I think I threw. So he super makes like Eagle on 16, Birdie on 17, something ridiculous. We're like all like in shock, like how is this happening? And so at, five, at one point I just lost it. I think I threw half my clubs in on the wall, in the pond on 16, half my clubs in the pond on 17. And those are all the same clubs that had just made it to the finals of the U.S. Mid-Am. 
with just like three or four weeks earlier. So Mark. I had to buy a new golf bag. Mark. I had to buy a whole new golf, whole new set of clubs from wedge to driver um, right after that event. Okay. Well. <laughs> the, best, the best part was I was scheduled to go play Red Stick, which is, was the host site of the mid-aim event, that's where we all parked. All the members at uh, John's Island are members at Red Stick, and they had no parking at John's Island, so we parked at Red Stick, used their range, blah, blah, so that's the correlation. Right. So a bunch of the members invited me to come back to Red Stick, like, you know, a month or so, a month or two after the event. Uh-huh. Well, literally, like, a week before the, I'm supposed to go back to Red Stick and play, that's when I threw all my stuff in the water. So I literally went and played Red Stick with all the members that I met from the U.S. Mid-Am with a borrowed set of clubs. I had never hit a single one of the clubs that I was playing with. So I borrowed a set of clubs from a buddy of mine. Runner up, he, runner up of the U.S. Mid-Am, and a, a few weeks later, you don't have any golf clubs anymore. Nope, not a single one of them. Perfect. Okay. Yep. Real uh, sentimental kind of guy, aren't you? <laughs> I don't have any of my hole-in-one balls. I don't have any of my scorecards. I don't keep anything, man. I mean, I have the memories in my head. That's all I need. And now you got this podcast episode, which will live on forever and ever. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. So, um, so I'm going to, I don't know if you're going to tell this story, but I at least have to ask. Um, tell me about the awards dinner for the FSGA when you won player of the year. Oh, for the FSGA? Yeah. Oh, that was a, yeah. oh man, that was a, that turned out to be like a phenomenal like speech. I uh, I I've heard about this, and uh, <laughs> I, I've heard different versions. So, yes. so set the record straight. Let's let's <laughs> let's hear it. I, I want to hear how this was, and and I'm I'm so pissed I was not there for this. But but please tell yeah. me this. All right. So the backstory is. Like three weeks earlier, maybe three or four weeks earlier, we play in the Southeastern Challenge, which was at the Bears Club, which is Jack Nicholas's place. And just to, and, and just to give listeners what a backstory, what that is. So the Southeast Challenge is a basically three team event between Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, all the best mid ams and seniors in the state. So it's an every two year thing. So just think Ryder Cup, but instead of two teams, it's three teams: Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, and yeah, Bears Club, uh, Jupiter, Florida, Jack Nicholas, his private club. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes. No, it's basically the home of the bear. Well, Gary Nicholas, Jack's son, is playing on our team. So we get to the end of the event, and I'm walking down the steps, basically walking to my car, and there's some players from one of the other teams walking up the steps, walking from the clubhouse, from the men's grill bar and restaurant down into the locker room or into the uh, parking lot. Those are walking down the steps. These other guys are coming up the steps, and I'm just like, they're like, man, this place is incredible. I mean, it's amazing you guys hosted us here. You know, just, you know, singing the whole place praises. I'm like, yeah, this place sucks, doesn't it? Like, just being sarcastic. And then from behind me, I hear this voice. Yeah, it really sucks. And I turned around, and sure as enough, it was Gary Nicholas was like two steps behind me the whole time. <laughs> and so I told Gary Nicholas that his place, I didn't, I said his place sucked in front of him, but I obviously, I obviously didn't mean that. Right. Like, oh, you know, he's like, I mean, I know his place, this place is awesome. I'm like, yeah, dude, it's incredible. So that's where that, this place sucks started. So, <laughs> so I go to do this award ceremony 
and I have like I don't write anything out. I uh, I'm just gonna do it off the cuff, but I have five or six ideas, five or six things I'm gonna say throughout the whole time. Sure. And, but I'm last to go. There's like twelve or thirteen or fourteen other people that are giving acceptance speeches before me. Yeah, the woman's player of the year, the junior player of the year, the senior player of the year. So they save it all for the end. You're gonna bring it home, Mark Dahl, player right. of the year, and you get up there and men's player of the year and I mean, long story short, well, first of all, I walk up there with a glass of wine and everybody's laughing as I'm walking up. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, I saw everybody else walking up with a script, so I figured I'd bring my script with me, too. So, <laughs> By the way, anybody notable there that we should be aware of? Oh, yeah, that's right. So this whole this whole award ceremony was also the the night when Jack Nicholas and Barbara Nicholas were getting inducted into the Florida State Golf Hall of Fame perfect so there's so they're sitting front and center front table right in front of the awards podium so yes oh god <laughs> oh, I'm even afraid just uh, go all right how to go tell me yeah so I bring my thing up I give my speech I tell I say what's going on and I kind of start the speech off with First of all, I want to take, thank Jack and Barbara for coming tonight, hosting us at their wonderful place. Um, you know, when am I ever going to get to give, say thank you to Jack Nicholas? Um, blah, blah, blah. And I said something about, thank you for hosting us at the Bears Club and Wall Street, which is another one of his courses down in Jupiter. Sure. They had us at the Bears Club for the state amateur. So they had hosted like three or four different events at three or four different Nicholas clubs um, throughout the season and clubs I'd played well at and done well at. And uh, was somewhere along the way, the speech, I basically told Jack Nicholas he sucks. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, 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 okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and it was, so, all right, so I saw so that and the whole place got dead silent, of course. So I have to backtrack. So I have to backtrack, and then retell the whole Gary Nicholas story about him coming down the steps. And so from that point on, throughout my whole speech, if something was good, I said it sucked. You know what I so. And when I got done, one of the one of the FSGA officials came up to me and they go, "When you told Zach that he sucked, like my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it." <laughs> he goes, "But he goes, I have to say." When the whole thing was over and he told the whole backstory to the whole thing, he goes, I swear to God, it was the only time I saw Jack smile the entire night during any speech. He thought it was hilarious. And I probably had 30 or 40 people come up to me after the whole thing was over and say, that was hands down by far the best speech of the night. So That's... I got away, I got, I got away with telling Jack Nicholas he saw. Wow. That's awesome. See, now I've, I've heard this story. I did not hear this ending. So that's why I was kind of wanting to make sure that the, that there was a good ending to it as far as, you know, other than you getting bounced out of the place and getting banned from any Nicholas design facilities for the rest of your life. So, uh, um, no, oh, it, it went over great. I spent 30 minutes talking with, with Jack and Barbara after the, uh, after the speech and towards at the end of the ceremony, it, uh, no, it went over great. I mean, I literally had 30 or 40 people tell me how great my speech was and how much fun they had with it. It was awesome. It worked out great. Awesome. Well, that's that's a phenomenal story. Um, so we, uh, we're we going to get you out of here. We have a quick uh, uh, segment here at the back of the range called the Quick Bucket. Just real quick uh, questions. Um, 
We'll start with this one since we're already on the topic of Nicholas. So Jack's victory in the 1986 Masters versus a potential fifth green jacket for Tiger Woods. Which would be the more substantial victory in your opinion? Uh, Fifth green jacket by Tiger Woods. Okay. Um, If you could give a major championship to anyone in history, alive, dead, male, female, anyone you want to, who would you give a major championship to? Uh, can I give it to my great grandfather? Absolutely. Yeah, he's my he's my golf idol. So yeah. Um, this one's kind of tailored for you. If you had the chance for one year to go caddy for anyone, forget about the money. Uh, I mean, you know, we're not we're not going at who's going to be the best paycheck. Uh, forget about any obligations you have at home. Just as in a vacuum, just hypothetically, you have one year you can go caddy for anyone in the world, any player. Who would you want a caddy for? Any golfer? Any golfer. On any tour, you get to be the caddy for the year. You get to, I mean, think about where you're going to, what tournaments you're going to end up caddying for. Um, you know, the most fun, uh, you know, who would you, if you had to pick one person, just give me a year. I just want to see what this roller coaster is like. Who would it be? Oh, I think Phil Nicholson would be the most fun to caddy for for a year. See, now that actually surprises me because you and Phil don't seem like you would have the same uh, mental approach to the game. I don't see you being as analytical and number crunching and kind of cerebral as Phil because Phil kind of has the reputation for being just a little, little overboard with that stuff. I would agree. That's why I think it would be fun. I would like to see the other side of it. Ah, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, and then the last one: Should the runner-up of the U.S. Mid-Am also be giving a also be given a Masters invite like the winner? Mm, that's a good question, and I'm biased for that, but I would say no. Okay, I think they should receive a U.S. Open invite, but not a Masters invite. So let's ask this one too: Does should the NCAA individual champion get any sort of exemptions to the Masters? Uh, yes, because that's harder to win than the U.S. Mid-Am. I think the NCAA champion should receive an invite to the Masters. If the Latin American amateur winner gets one and the European amateur gets one, I think the NCAA individual winner should get one as well. There you go. So you and I uh, did share a, a pretty big honor recently. Uh, we were both selected as captains for our respective teams for the 2018 Florida cup. You are the co-captain along with Doug lacrosse. Who's a damn legend up there in North Florida. And then I have the, uh, the, the counterpart, the senior, uh, uh, counterpart of lacrosse. Uh, Rick Wolf is a co-captain of the South team. So this is going to be about a month before you're getting ready for, uh, for Q school. How much are you looking forward to that? And, uh, are you going to share any secrets with me about how you're going to select your team? <laughs> I'm definitely not sharing any secrets about how I'm selecting my team, okay. but I am totally looking forward to being the captain of this event. We got beat by you guys last year, um, and not by not by a very wide margin. And I feel like if things were different and things some things were changed, we may could have had a chance to win. So this year, I'm going to love the fact that it's put on me, and I get an opportunity to kind of tweak who plays with who and who plays against who in the singles and you know, how we do things. So, nice. and it was 
by far one of the most fun events I've ever played in. Yeah, it, uh, it really is a, a whole lot of fun. Well, Mark, listen, I really appreciate taking the time to uh, join us here at the back of the range. Uh, we will definitely follow you throughout the year with your your uh, your stadium performances and USJ uh, appearances that you're going to be making. And we'll definitely keep tracking as you get ready for Q School. And I will see you in. Uh, I will see you soon at one of the FSG events. Awesome, man. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's gonna looking forward to a fun year. It's gonna be uh, got a lot going on, and uh, keep our fingers crossed that we have some success. Awesome, man. All the best. All right, dude. Thanks, Ben. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Special thanks to Mark Dahl for joining us this week. Feel free to reach us via Instagram, the Back of the Range Podcast. Don't forget, you can now find us on Spotify. So go ahead and enjoy that or Apple Podcast. But we will see you next week for another great episode here at the Back of the Range.